with lazy teenagers, there's no sense of urgency, is there? Now, I'm not singling anyone out here this morning, but I'll ask the question, are you a lazy teenager? Or have you got a lazy teenager? Or were you a lazy teenager? To be honest, I could be pretty lazy as a teenager. When mum and dad asked me to do something, it was always the same response. In a minute. In a minute. Tim, can you empty the bins? In a minute. Can you stack the dishwasher? In a minute. Clean your room now. In a minute. There was no sense of urgency. It was always in a minute. Now, I never got the stopwatch out and started timing and got to when the minute came up, oh, there we go, better go and do that job, better go clean my room. A minute would turn into five minutes, five minutes would turn into half an hour, half an hour would turn into an hour. Tim, hurry up, clean your room. In a minute. It'd be the same response every time. But it wasn't just me, my brother was the same. There was no sense of urgency, especially with mowing the lawn. One day we were playing cricket and he goes down like a sack of potatoes. I was sure that he dived and was faking an injury. He was doing it to get out of mowing the lawn. I was sure of it, I let him know it, and I let my parents know it. Well, they took him to hospital, and apparently, he broke his ankle. Now, I've never seen the x-rays, so I still don't believe it. I'm not convinced because he was just getting out of mowing the lawn. There was never a sense of urgency with mowing the lawn and my brother. Well, as we open up Nahum again this morning, for our third and final week, we can't be like lazy teenagers. With what Nahum has to say, with the message of judgment, with everything we've heard so far and with what we're going to hear today, how can we just be passive? How can we be inactive? How can we make excuses? There needs to be urgency. The message demands it. And if there isn't, it it either means that we're not listening or we haven't taken to heart what Nahum's saying and what he's warning us of. Well, we read Nahum, the poetic theologian, in, uh, in the first week, if you were here, and he showed us God's character behind judgment, the God who is good, the God who is just, the God who won't just stand by while his world, the world he loves, and the people he loves are trampled underfoot. We've read Nahum, the poetic war correspondent. He confronted us with the reality of judgment, the flesh and blood reality. This week... We're reading Nahum, the poetic prophet of doom. And he reveals to us the certainty of judgment. See, there's no doubt. Judgment will come. The day's coming when God says, enough's enough. And Nahum lifts our eyes to see that certainty. He helps us to know the times that we're living in. We're in the last days. The clock's ticking. Judgment Day is coming and we need to be ready, we need to be alert, there has to be a sense of urgency. Well, like chapter 2 and chapter 3, the fall of Nineveh is the focus. And Nineveh's fall is certain. Nineveh is in God's crosshairs. He's going to wipe it off the map 
And the reason why is because of her evil. Have a look there at verse 1. The very first word, it's telling. Woe. It expresses pain. Pain at the city's evil. It hurts to see people trampled underfoot, to see people crushed by a human predator. It's distressing to witness the inhumanity of humanity. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. Shedding blood, lying, profiteering, victimising. Sin city, that's Nineveh. Then we get this horrific battle scene. We saw one in chapter 2. Like chapter 2, you can see it, you can hear it. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses, jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords, glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. Who's doing the attacking here? Is it Nineveh attacking or is it Nineveh being attacked? I think it's Nineveh attacking. I think this is a picture of, that's continuing to des- describe the sins of the city. Assyrian brutality is on view. This Nazi Germany of the ancient world is seen here. This awful, militaristic, oppressive regime. Kidnapping, killing, torturing, you name it. There's hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, no end to the dead bodies. There's so many that you trip over them. Nahum likes his images, doesn't he? His metaphors, he loves an extended metaphor. He's described this wicked empire already as a wild, ravaging lion that itself will be wildly ravaged. That's how the Assyrians thought of themselves. And they thought of their city as the lion's den. But Nahum switches metaphors here. The image changes from the predator to the prostitute. Like all great cities, she was outwardly attractive. She drew people in. She seduced the nations. People saw the opportunity to make money, the chance of a better lifestyle. The city offered security. This is where life was at. This is where all the movers and shakers were. This is where things happened. But she wasn't the beautiful city that she looked like. She was a prostitute. She charmed in order to make a profit. She led nations, families, individuals to destruction. She preyed upon the weakness of sinful human flesh. It reminds me of another prostitute in the Bible, in Revelation 17 and 18. The mother of all prostitutes, she's described. Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great that represents all persecuting regimes. Nineveh, Rome, Nazi Germany, North Korea, you name it. And like Nineveh, she attracts the nations. They want her wealth. They want her immorality. Doesn't the spirit of Babylon still live on here in Canberra? Canberra might not persecute us, not like Nineveh did anyway, but it might seduce us. 
What attracts you to Canberra? I'm guessing probably not the architecture. But is it the opportunity to make a name for yourself? To build up your own achievements? Is it the promise of a great lifestyle? Convenience? Kate was telling me about a mum at, uh, at the school that one of our daughters is at who's moved from Sydney and is like, it's just so convenient. You can just drive to the shops, you can park, you can get your shopping and you can go home. It's easy. Life's good here. Or is it the chance to get a leg up in life? Is Canberra just a step along the way to something greater for you in life? Canberra offers all these things, but it does it without God in the picture, doesn't it? Canberra is caught up in the worldly project that we heard about uh, back when we looked at Obadiah, if you were here. Remember that project of building the kingdom without the king? Of wanting the things that God gives but without God? Well, as a matter of urgency, don't be seduced by this kingdom. Because it'll chew you up and it'll spit you out and it won't bring you what you really want. Only God can bring you that. God will judge and remove the great cities who live in opposition to her. And Nineveh, the prostitute, is an example, verse 5. God takes sin personally. I am against you, he says. It's the second time he says it in this book. He's acting. God is acting here. Yes, through the Medes and the Babylonians and others, but it's God who is bringing his perfect justice against this city. It's all in the first person, isn't it? Verse 5 and 6, I, 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 I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. I will expose you. I will shame you. Everyone will see the cheap prostitute that you were. There's a positive and a negative to this picture of being shamed, isn't there? The positive is that God sees everything. All those sins that don't bother us, bother God. All those sins that we might consider acceptable, God will expose as unacceptable. All the evil, all the injustice, everything that no one else sees, or that very few see, or that we might not get hung up on, God gets hung up on. You see, if the Royal Commission into Banking doesn't expose all the corruption and all the evil and injustice there, we don't need to despair, because God will. God will bring it all into the open one day, when he, when he comes in judgment. And that's a good thing, isn't it? It's a good thing that God cares about injustice. But there's a negative as well, isn't there? Because our secret sins, the things that we wouldn't want anyone else to know about us, the things that we've done that we're ashamed of, they too will be laid bare. They too will be exposed. Unless, of course, we've got our trust in the Lord Jesus, who covers over our shame, who was shamed instead of us on the cross, made a spectacle. It reminds us to have our trust there, doesn't it? 
this idea of shame in judgment. See, sometimes we just think of judgment as simply repayment and that's what we've seen through Nahum so far. It is being repaid, getting what you deserve, but there's also the shame aspect and that's what we see here. God will expose Nineveh and when he does, did you notice that? Everyone will run, horrified at what they see. Those who suffered at her hands aren't going to weep for her. No one's going to find it in themselves to grieve for Nineveh when it falls. Nineveh will be judged because of her evil. And the certainty of the fact is reinforced by the rhetorical question at the end of verse 7, where can I find anyone to comfort you? Nineveh will fall because of her evil. And Nineveh will fall just like the city of Thebes. Now Thebes, most of us probably don't know what it, where it is, where it was, It was the capital of Egypt and it was just like Nineveh, okay? Wealthy, powerful and it thrived on conquest. It thrived on pressing hard the little guy. And Thebes thought that they were invincible, this city did. They had the mighty River Nile defending it. Yet in verse 10 and 11, she was taken captive and went into exile and her infants were dashed to pieces at every corner. Lots were cast for her nobles and all her great men were put in chains. See, the irony here is that Thebes fell to the Assyrians themselves. If you think you're safe, if you think you're invincible, God's saying to them, do your history, think back to Thebes, what you did to them, it's coming to you. As surely as it fell, you will fall verse 11, you too will become drunk, you too will go into hiding and you too seek refuge from the enemy, you too will be destroyed with the same brutality. The horrors you inflicted will be inflicted on you. This is confronting, isn't it, for us? The horror of God's fair judgments they can be difficult to accept. This is hard. Infants bashed to death at the head of every street. It's horrific, isn't it? We can't imagine such brutality. No one would treat another human being like this, would they? This is humanity at its worst. When war's declared, man, woman, child, nobody's safe. The nature of humanity's inhumanity. That's what we see here. Assyria led the way in this regard. They enjoyed it. What was done by them would be done to them. God's fair and right justice. Well, that certainty is underlined by the question in verse 8, are you better than Thebes? The answer is no. Nineveh will fall and that is despite her strength verse 12 to 18. Her strength and might, it's all a show. There's no substance. See, when the time comes to defend herself, she's going to have no answers. Listen to the mocking tones. All your fortresses are like fig trees. You know, they get shaken and they fall over into the mouth of the eater. Look at your troops They are all weaklings. They are 
effeminate. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. See, everything they boasted in, all the strength and might that they boasted in, is going to prove to be nothing at the, when they come into the hands of God. Draw water for the siege, strengthen your defences, work the clay, tread, tread the mortar, repair the brickwork. Do all you like. It's going to make no difference. Now, we've had the lion metaphor. We've had the prostitute metaphor. But there's one more metaphor. The locust or the grasshopper metaphor. You see, Nineveh's destruction is going to be compared to the aftermath of a locust plague when they come come in and ravage everything, consume everything. But then Nahum uses the image differently. He taunts them. He says, go on, multiply like locusts. Strengthen your numbers. Do as much as you want. You increased your merchants. But when trouble comes, these merchants that fed off you, they're going to be Gonskis. Not only them, but the military and others in the heat of the battle, they too will fly away to who knows where. Nineveh will be left unable to defend itself. Despite her strength, it'll fall, just like a house of cards. It will not, it cannot stand. And you know what? Everyone's going to rejoice. That's the picture in verse 19. Nahum does that thing again. He did it in chapter 2, where he takes you to the scene. He writes about the future as if he's there. And by doing that, he makes you feel like you're there. We see the king of Assyria come to his end. His nobles have nicked off. He carries a fatal wound. He's completely helpless. The writing's on the wall. The cruel predator has come to an end. God's judgment against the cruelest of nations has come at last. And God's people, in fact, all the nations around who are oppressed by them, rejoice. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? No one's mourning for Nineveh. Joy breaks out across the ancient world. Well, if you were alive... Some of you weren't, and that's okay. Do you remember the cheering, the shouting, the joy at Saddam Hussein's execution? Imprinted in my mind is the image of people pulling down, destroying the monument of him in Iraq after his death. They're cheering, they're clapping, they're rejoicing, and when we look at that, we think, isn't that a bit sadistic? It's not quite right, is it? but we weren't, we weren't the ones who suffered at his, under, under him, are we? We're not the ones who suffered under his hands. We're not the ones who lost family. We're not the ones who knew of people who were treated horrifically. We, we're not the ones who experienced the chemical warfare. All that sort of stuff. Nineveh was a city that brought evil everywhere. Everywhere it went. And across the ages, we've seen invincible kingdoms like Nineveh collapse overnight, haven't we? They looked like permanent fixtures. Who would have thought in Poland, under the height of the Nazi 
German regime, who would have thought that Hitler and Germany would fall when they did? Who would have thought that the communist regime would collapse the way it did? They looked like permanent fixtures and so did Nineveh. Nineveh, would have, it would have felt like Nineveh controlled the world until God decided enough's enough. He'd been patient. He'd sent Jonah to them. He called on them to repent and they did when Jonah went but they turned back to their old ways, their evil ways and they oppressed nations for decades, for centuries. See, God does delay, doesn't he? God's judgment, it is delayed. His people back here experienced that, but they rejoiced when it came. God does delay. It says in Nahum 1 verse 3, remember that he is slow to anger, but great in power. And he will not let the guilty go unpunished. So for all the delays in justice... The certainties of God's justice must never, ever be underestimated. We don't know the timing, but we can be assured of the certainty, can't we? See, it's not a matter of if God judges. It's a matter of when. There is a day coming, the day of Jesus' return. He will judge the living and the dead. Know the times that you're in. We're in the last days. The clock's ticking. And the day will come when God says, enough's enough for the last time, definitively. And everything will be made right. Everything will be put in its right place. And that includes judgment. We've seen that in Nahum, haven't we? God's path to what is good and what is great, God's path to a better future and a better reality means that evil and injustice, everything that's bad, needs to be dealt with. But God's slowness to anger is an opportunity, isn't it? He's holding back of judgment until that day. It's a chance to stop and to make peace with God. Romans 2 verse 4 warns us, It says, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? See, it's a big mistake to think there's no justice in the world, that you can get away with stuff, that there's no morality, that there isn't a God who judges. It's a big mistake to think that you can put it off, to think you can just worry about it later, to think that the Christian thing, that Jesus is only for people a certain age or when you get older. It's for all of us to reckon with. And it's a big mistake to think that all is well with the world, that there's a future reality that is great without God, without judgment. God's path to what's great must deal with what's bad. God will punish in due time. He'll not permanently leave us unpunished. He will, in his good time, bring the payment we deserve. 
We ignore these certainties at our peril. And we miss out on the forgiveness and the grace that is offered in the Lord Jesus, where, as we have seen, God's justice and his mercy come together at that beautiful place. The judgment reserved for us is taken by Jesus. And we are counted free and we can rejoice. There's another place to go just before we finish and that's in 2 Peter, chapter 8, verse 1 to 13. Sorry, verse 8 to 13. 2 Peter, chapter 8, verse... Chapter 2, sorry, verse 8 to 13. Peter's writing in the context of people scoffing at the idea that God might come in judgment. And he says this, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Hear that? But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Do you long for the day of the Lord? Do you long for it? How, how can we spend three weeks in Nahum get being struck with this evil and oppressive regime that Nineveh was and reflecting on our own world and seeing it continue? How can we not long for Jesus' return when he will put all things right But of course he hasn't yet. And the only reason why is because there are more people to be saved. And so there's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of urgency that we must have in these last days as we look forward to the day of the Lord when he will return in judgment. But as we continue to hold out the gospel, the message of Jesus calling others to turn to him. See, Jesus is Saviour and He is Lord. Any Christian can share that message. But as we finish up, let's remember what Nahum's all about. Let's remember that it is a great and a good thing that our God is good and that our God is just and that he doesn't just sweep injustice under the carpet but that he will deal with it, bringing about a better future. Remember what I said if you were here from chapter 1. If you love someone who's been the target of terrible violence or if you yourself has been the target of terrible injustice, Nahum's for you. If you can't understand why bad people thrive and good people suffer, Nahum's for you. If you hate that the world's not fair, Nahum's for you. If you long for something better, Nahum's for you.